0: Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Richard Thomas tells us about the Hanseatic League, or Hansa. It was a major international trading organisation that operated between the 13th and the 17th centuries.
1: The Hanseatic League, the Hansa, the story of the league which flourished as a trading network for 400, arguably 600 years, from the mid-13th to the 17th and beyond, is probably not that well known to you, unless you've cruised or travelled in the Baltic and know Scandinavia quite well. You may have asked why the German airline is called Lufthansa. I'll come to that at the end. It was the key trading network based in the Baltic and the Black Sea, and is regularly, in all the literature, referred to as a precursor, or perhaps a prototype, for the European Union. Some of the countries that we think of were not in the same shape as they are now. Sweden and Finland didn't really exist. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania certainly existed, that was a very powerful thing. Russia, based on Novgorod, was quite important. The Holy Roman Empire, that's very important to the overall story. It began lots of small towns gradually trading with each other, and I think the first main trading links were with Novgorod in Russia, and it gradually grew and expanded. And virtually all of the key cities were in the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire changed its size and shape through several hundred years. It changes its shape, but it's still all virtually what we now call Germany and perhaps Poland, is still part of the Holy Roman Empire. The last one was 1806, when it was abolished by Napoleon. So the context of what we're talking about is really quite important. This was after the Vikings had done their thing, after they'd invaded Britain, France, and the other countries. The Danes and the Swedes, Norwegians to some extent, were beginning to have a peaceful settlement and beginning of control over their own countries. After the Northern Crusades, which was basically the German takeover of what is now Lithuania, etc. And so there was a whole new set of power arrangements in the Baltic. What the Germans controlled was not nation-states in the north part of what is now Germany. They were individual city-states, some principalities, some bishoprics, and the most influential ones, or they became influential, grew into free imperial cities under the umbrella of the Holy Roman Empire. So they had nominal allegiance to the Holy Roman Empire, but basically they did their own thing, and it was these cities that formed the Hanseatic League. And the early period was a time of great change in Northern Europe. One bit of Europe has been at war since 1066, Somewhere, sometime, there's a wall. Northern Europe, semi-settled after the Northern Crusades and the Viking advances, and with the help of the Holy Roman Empire, semi-settled, enabling the Hanseatic League to prosper. But a number of things had a massive impact on the story, and one of them was the Black Death. 1340s and 50s, sweeping through the whole of... Europe and killing millions of people. It is reckoned that something like a third of the population of that part of Europe was killed by the Black Death. So the effect on economy, society, culture, trade, everything was amazing. But there are positives. There are things like the Renaissance which flourished in Italy, developed arts and science as we know, but things like printing and paper which allowed records to be kept and circulated and contracts to be signed and copied and handed out, so that there was much more of a legal basis for the trading they were dealing with. And therefore it wasn't just your chum in the next village who you knew and trusted, you had a paper document which could be enforced. Hanseatic League was one of the instruments of enforcement against traders who were deciding to run away from their debts. The Hanseatic League was a very powerful group of city-states and made sure they didn't run away from their debts. And in the broader picture we get things like Columbus, who discovers the New World, 1492, and this gave new opportunities for the Hanse. but it could be argued that opening up trade to Africa and Asia reduced the long-term importance of the Hanse because the world got bigger. Religion, as we know, was in ferment in this period. Luther, 1517 plus, helped to reduce the power of the Catholic Church and make independent thought a little more able to indulge in it. The Protestant ethic, the work ethic, became important, and money-making became much more respectable. Trade links to other countries and other cultures made people less willing to accept the strict moral and other controls imposed by the Catholic Church. Whatever else the Catholic Church was, it was not outward-looking and free-thinking. Both Luther and printing were important in helping to bring about a new world, perhaps the beginning of the modern era. So that's the context in which the Hansa developed. So let's get back to the Hansa. Who was it? Who was involved? The, the major Hansa cities. Now, Lübeck was the centre of it. Novgorod, Bergen, London and Bruges. These were the outstations of the central German trading towns. There were inland cities such as Krakow, They were not German, but they were centres of trade for German goods, the trade links run by the German, the Hansa towns, who organised the buying and selling. Now, one description of the Hansa has been a Northern European Trading Confederation, which also operates as a quasi-political trade guild, based on a group of towns led by Lübeck. Now, a bit more about Lübeck. This was referred to as the Queen of the Hanseatic given rights as an imperial city by the Holy Roman Emperor. This meant that it was not under the control of a local duke, but of the much more distant Holy Roman Empire. The way the Holy Roman Empire survived all these years, if you, a duke, a Hanseatic city, a bishopric, said, yes, Holy Roman Emperor, you're the boss, we bend the knee, we pay you our respects, but basically leave us to carry on what we're doing. That's how the Holy Roman Empire lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was a prestigious post, but it wasn't a very powerful post in the sense that it could not always, it could, could, if it needed to, impose authority by invasion or by force of arms, but that was not its main method. The League, therefore, could do what its leaders wanted to do, which was to make money. And in 1259, it formed an alliance with Hamburg, Cologne and Rostock, already big important trading cities, and they did this to regulate the Baltic herring fisheries and the mining and equipment of salt, mostly from near Kiel. Salt was needed to preserve the fish. So herring and salt were the foundation trading goods of the Hanseatic League. Now 1259 is generally agreed to be the launch date of the Hanseatic League, but of course to get big enough to form an alliance, they'd been trading with each other and with Novgorod particularly for at least a century, and Visby and Novgorod were part of their long, long-term arrangements. Now, the Hansa did expand rapidly because it was in a kind of trading vacuum. Nobody else was really competing. It became a major force in the Baltic and in the North Sea, an important link with Britain. And at its peak, it had a flexible membership of 150 members, basically all the rich cities of Europe were part of the League. I saw one reference saying we had 1,500 cities. Now, I'm not sure whether somebody slipped a naught in by mistake. Winchester was part of the trade fair link, so you could say Winchester was one, Farnham was another, Reklesham was a third, and Gilsham was a fourth, but they were all part of the Winchester network of trading towns. And so I think that is perhaps how they got to 1500. But 150 substantial cities were part of it. They were not countries but cities and guilds of well-financed traders in these key towns and their purpose was to make money by trading rather than by invasion and settlement. Now that's an absolutely key point. Their modus operandi was trade and money made through trade, not invasion and settlement. The old model of wealth generation around the world up to them was invasion, plunder, of raping and pillaging, and then settlement and high levels of taxation. This was a new model. It was different and had greater promise for the long run, and was also a great deal less violent. Now, the, the development of this process obviously took place in different places, different speeds, different goods to trade, different levels of wealth generated. But this was, if you like, a group of merchants were working together, trading across the Baltic, trading to the next big city. And they would gradually be controlled by the richest people in the towns, who were the merchants. And they would linked up and developed other villages and small towns, particularly on the coast, and those with harbours, and build them up into Hansa towns. Riga, Gdansk, and to a degree even Bergen in Norway, were developed by the Hansa, not by the local community or the king or the prince or whatever. So they were creations of the Hansa. And they gradually established a set of rules known as the Law of Lübeck, and these rules adopted in 1356. Things were quite slow in those days. 100 years after their first trading, they signed the alliances. 100 years later, so things didn't happen that fast, but there was a gradual, continued build-up. And these Laws of Lübeck regulated the trade rules, regulated how you paid your bills, set tariffs, arranged insurance, very important if you're a shipper, They arranged the insurance and they guarded the interests of the merchants and they could and they did take joint action against unfriendly local rulers and certainly against pirates who because this was a trading area the Baltic pirates were very lively. So the first law of Lubeck was formalised at their first Diet or Parliament or Assembly whatever you call it, held in Lubeck in 1356 to make sure all the members agreed on, followed the rules and, if necessary, the Parliament made new rules. It wasn't just a trade union for merchants, they became shipbuilders, publishers of navigational charts and people that did finally sort out the pirates in the Baltic, gradually. They were also, this is quite surprising in a way, they were willing and able to fight as a group to protect their interests and at one stage they declared war on Denmark. Here's a network of traders, this is the the CBI declaring war on the nation of Denmark. See, Denmark was more than it is now. Visby was a major free trading city halfway to and so a very important way station in the trading arrangements. Now the Danes controlled the entrance and the exits, from the Baltic, which is a great way of taxing ships going through, raising tariffs, which they did, and Visby on Gotland had been a free port and a staging post, of assembly point, an entrepot, really, with the eastern Baltic and Russia, since an agreement in 1161. So this is really one of the original trade agreements. It wasn't Danish, but as it got richer, the Danish kings cast a covetous eye over it and decided to take it over. King Valdemar in 1361, decided to attack Fisby, and he did so, and their citizens, plus the resident Hansa merchants, a third or more of the overall population, German speakers. And Waldemar overwhelmed their defences, killing over 1,600 people, which was a serious battle, obviously, outside the city walls. And he said he would sack the city and kill even more of the residents unless they filled three large barrels with gold and silver. And this they duly did, because they didn't want to get killed. The Hansa, as an organisation, was not having this, and declared war against Denmark and fought back. They certainly lost the first round in 1361, but they won the second in 1369, ironically with help from some pirates, who were kind of free labour and good seamen. And the subsequent Treaty of Stralsund in 1370, things worked out beautifully for the Hansa. Visby remained Danish, but the privileges of the Hansa merchants and their monopoly over the Baltic fishing trade were confirmed. So it's a good example of Hansa not wanting to take over, run, settle in these places, but to carry on having trade uninterrupted. This they succeeded in doing. Now, the rich merchants organised things for their own benefit. It also gave them the right to veto the appointment of Danish kings. And you can imagine, however sensitively they used this power, it was not going to make them many friends. Visby today, there's still a lot of fortifications, battlements, and it looks like an old city It was very rich once. Now you may have asked, why Stralsund? That's not a very familiar name to me. It was, however, a major Hanseatic town on the Baltic, near Rugen Island. It was not a trivial trading center. 300 ships trading on their behalf. The church at Stralsund was built in around 1270, and the church and the city hall are next to each other. God and Mammon working very closely together. So, despite their power and their wealth in the 13th, 14th, 15th, even 16th centuries, the League did not use their muscle to develop a land empire, but made sure the local powers from the Holy Roman Emperor downwards let them get on with their business of making money. A summary of what I've been saying. For profit and joined up for security as well. Trade agreement in Visby, Lubeck formed the alliance, Lubeck law is established, Treaty of Stralsund confirmed all of these privileges. So it was a major power, it grew for 200 years, remained a major power for another 200 years. Quite a formidable operation. So, what did they actually do? I mean, who, who traded in what? Trade routes and goods traded. The thing about the Baltic is that around it, Different countries have a wide range of different goods and services to offer so they could trade with each other and swap things that they didn't themselves have. Very good arrangements for. The British exported wool and cloth from sheep, particularly in the Cotswolds, and imported timber and grain. Norway, based on Bergen, exported fish, butter and hides, and it imported grain. The Swedes exported copper, iron and herring, the Russians exported timber, fur, and amber, mainly from Kaliningrad, and they imported consumer goods such as English cloth. Now, food was, of course, a major trade good, and Poland, which included a lot of what is now Ukraine, with its very rich soil, was a major producer then, and is now, of wheat and grain. The French, they produced wine and they purchased whatever was available. They were not major players in this setup. But their wine, I'm sure, was always popular. Lubeck, in the middle, traded down with Genoa and Venice and with London, Scotland, Edinburgh, and with Novgorod and even Kiev and beyond. So it was the centre of this amazing trade link. It had links with the southern Mediterranean and the Middle East and the overland spice routes to India and beyond. Now, the reference to spices reminds me that they're not only trading with local goods and grain and fish and cloth and so on, but anything that could make a profit because they had a trading network in place they could plug into other trade goods. And one of the most popular goods over which the Hansa developed, really, a monopoly, was pepper. Now, pepper had been imported into Europe from India since the Roman times and was one of the goods which helped to make Venice rather rich. Their main North European link was with Bruges one of the contours, I'll explain that in a minute. From there it was distributed around Northern Europe by the Hansa merchants. It got to England mainly through Kings Lynn, which became in the 14th century, the main port of entry for spices into England. So having already established their network, they could easily trade in other goods and quickly dominate that trade. And it's this variety and complexity of goods and the strength of their actual trading network which made them so profitable. The wealth on offer could have been indulged in building lots of cathedrals as other medieval kings did but they basically focused on wealth. It was partly a defensive alliance, partly an aggressive trading alliance but it was of, by and for the merchants whose focus as I've said was on making money. Now how did it all work? Well It started with nine circles, basically groups geographically located around the country, and they quickly coalesced into four, and all of these four were led by German cities. and That's a key point, they were all managed by German cities. Four essentially focused on the Pomeranian one, Lübeck was the centre, the main ports nearby, the Saxony circle included Berlin, the third circle further west was based around the Rhine, Cologne and Dortmund were its chief cities. The fourth to the east was the Polish Prussian circle based at Gdansk and included Visby, Stockholm, Riga. So it's slightly more diffuse. Not all of the members of that network were German speaking, but the key city of Gdansk was. What we tend to forget is that Gdansk was 90% German until the Second World War. Now, other cities in this circle, such as Visby and Riga, were basically controlled by German merchants. Perhaps from our point of view is the trading links with the contours. They mean offices. They were foreign depots run by German merchants. And they were in the main main trading centres in the otherwise independent and non-Germanic states. The most important of these was initially Bruges, the trade south, as I mentioned, Novgorod, obviously, for trade with Russia and further east, London from the mid 13th century, and Bergen from 1343. And it's, I think, a semi mentioned that Hans actually controlled the Bergen trade. They didn't link up with Bergen and was already trading. Basically, they controlled Bergen. And they were more important there than the nominal kings of Denmark or Norway, depending on who was in charge. Rather like Visby, the German traders were the key to understanding its existence. There were minor contours, such as King's Lynn, which I've mentioned, and on the River Scheldt, Antwerp grew into a significant contour when Bruges lost its edge in the 15th century. So Antwerp, which still is, developed into a financial and trading centre, linked up with a number of ports in the area, linked up with ports also in Britain. Let's look at the Hansa in Britain. London was a major clearinghouse or contour. And there had been trade, of course, with the continent forever from Britain, from the Romans, I suppose, and certainly the Angles and Saxons were Germanic tribes, the Normans, as we know, were originally Vikings. And various kings gave concessions to these German traders, really in thanks for lending him money or helping Him with some war. Henry II allowed the establishment of a trading network in 1157 by the Rhineland merchants. Richard I gave rights to the Cologne merchants as a way of thanking them for the help they gave him in 1194 when he returned from captivity after the Third Crusade. In 1266 a consortium of Hansa merchants from Lubeck, Camber Cologne were granted special rights in England. Now their request was granted partly, mainly, because the group had made favourable loans to Henry III to help him fight his various wars. They were given in 1282 rights over a block of London on the Thames which became called the Steelyard in in the 19th century, it became Cannon Street Station. There's a town within a town, this was true of all the settlements by the Hansa merchants in their contours. A town within a town with their own rules and laws inside, rather like a diplomatic center. It had its own warehouses, church, residential accommodation, and they were more like dormitories than a street of houses, but they were there and they were fairly secure, and those two dates really mark the arrival and establishment of the Hansa in England. Gradually, other centres up the East Coast developed. I've mentioned Kings Lynn, Norwich, Boston, and later on Hull, Newcastle, and indeed Edinburgh. And these three naturally focused on trade with Norway. Now, in London, as in elsewhere, the leading Hansa merchants were interested in establishing warehouses or factories and in establishing access to the key goods that they wanted to trade with and they demanded, and often got, immunity from local taxes and even from the local laws. There was somebody committed a crime, the Hansa dealt with it, and wherever possible they demanded trade monopolies. They obtained some of their concessions by backing the winning team during the British Wars of the Roses, which, you know, that was luck to a degree. They were also not beyond bribery to get their concessions dealt with, such as handling about 90% of the wool exports from Britain to the rest of Europe, and a sizeable chunk of the Cornish tin trade. Now, they were not the only merchants around. The famous Sank ports, based on Dover, were competing for trade rights in the North Sea and were not at all happy about the power of the Hansa. Not only did they exclude British merchants, but being monopolies meant that their prices for the producers, the farmers, were lower and they could put on whatever markup they liked, so the prices to people to whom they sold it were higher. So it certainly enabled the merchants themselves to cash quite serious profits. Their unpopularity with the English merchants led to several direct attacks on the steel yard in London by angry citizens. Wat Tyler and his followers resented their privileges, and during the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, their complex was wrecked. Again in 1492, the steel yard was besieged by Londoners, but by then it was well enough protected to remain secure. The Wars of the Roses were important in English history, as we know, but ironically it helped to strengthen the Hansa because whichever side you were on, you needed trade goods from Europe. Boston, King's Lynn, etc., maybe not London, became more important to keep bringing stuff in, including food, and the kings were too weak to control what the Hansa was doing. Now the Hansa was perhaps in their peak in England during the early Tudor period, and the Hansa merchants were pretty well off them, but of course the richer they got, the more the resentment grew, and protecting their monopolies helped to deal with their downfall. The City of London itself was growing more successful under Elizabeth, and protested against the power of the Hansa in England. And one complaint was that they refused to use English ships, as Britain was building more and more ships, removing the oak forests from much of Britain. It was a time when our trading and our city of London was rising, Bristol and other places, and the Hansa still wanted to keep their monopolies. British merchants had their own ships, but they had to pay taxes and bribes to the British Crown, whereas the Hansa did not. Finally, particularly the city of London, persuaded Elizabeth first to curtail and then eventually to close the handset steelyard in London. So in 1598 the steelyard was closed. This did not stop all trade, of course, but it did remove the monopoly and the special privileges of the German merchants. There were costs to these developments. Obviously, the cost of insurance went up. Service was a bit less reliable. You know, the 310 from Steelyard to Bergen cannot be guaranteed because it was no longer a monopoly. Some markets closed because it was no longer as profitable for the Hansen. so there was a downside, but basically the British merchants gradually took over. James I allowed the Steelyard to reopen in 1605, but their power was broken and they never really reached the dominance they had hitherto had in British trade. The English traders were getting better, their ships were getting better, the capital and the markets they had were expanding, and they were trading much more in other parts of the world. Perhaps the main thing which undermined the Hansa was the gradual rise of the nation state, whose merchants operated quite differently from Hansa merchants and who just represented their own cities. And the merchants in other countries, particularly places like Holland, were very happy to trade directly with their English counterparts because it cut out the Hansa middlemen and therefore increased their profits. There were technical innovations as well, double entry bookkeeping, bills of credit rather than hard cash or bags of money as you've seen in a million films. These two ideas were introduced from Italy, from Venice and Genoa. They sort of drip fed something into the story of the decline of the Hansa. They were reluctant to abandon They're long-established, I mean, hundreds of years' worth of long-established trading traditions. But the British and Dutch traders were much more nimble and much more willing to try new things. So the greater flexibility of England and Holland particularly made the handsome model harder to maintain. The Great Fire of London literally obliterated the entire steel yard and, and other great chunks of London, so there are no buildings left. In London that have any connections with the except arguably, Can Street Station. In Britain, I think that is visibly, Hansa is King's Lynn, a junior contour, a medium-sized town, and a major trading center and a clearing house. It had close links with other ports along the coast. So there was strong links with the rest of the Hansa during the British period. And of course, when it ended, they didn't stop trading, but the Hansa no longer controlled everything. Among the legacies of the Hansa, even if there are no buildings, is the word sterling. It is claimed it comes from Osterlings, meaning people from the east of Europe, whose money was reliable. Schilling is, of course, also a German word. Let's move on to Bergen. Now, the trade flows include Bergen, (laughs) Novgorod, Riga, Danzig, Lübeck, etc. Bergen was not a major centre, but it was the major centre for Denmark, Norway, Sweden. It was an entrepot for the northern part of Europe, and it was the gateway for many important Norwegian resources, such as fish, timber and furs. The old town of Bergen was known as the German wharf, And indeed, the majority of the population in the old town was mostly German. I think I said that it was a German city, really, transplanted to Bergen. The houses were wooden, and despite restrictions on heating and lighting, they kept burning down, which must have made them pretty grim in winter. You either froze or you burned to death. But what we see today is the rebuilt version, because they did keep burning down, but using the same style, the same layout and the same measurements as the original. I'm sure many of you have been to Bergen because it is on the tourist map a very nice place to visit and if you go to Bergen you look around the Hansa buildings. Bergen had major trade links with Scotland unsurprisingly including the Shetlands and the Orkneys and also traded with Iceland and Greenland and the nature of the Hansa monopoly ensured that the goods that had to be brought to Bergen were repackaged and then reassigned for onward shipment to smaller towns like Tromso further north. And that's what entrepot trade means, the sort of classic model of colonial trade. In fact, it is remarkably similar to a massive Amazon warehouse. You bring all the goods there and then you ship them out again. And that's what the contours did. And that's what Bergen did for the whole of the north coast of Norway. The profits, of course, went to the German traders, not the members of the town. They got jobs, but they didn't necessarily benefit from it. And they became more powerful, in a way, than the kings of Norway and Denmark. And they confirmed, put in place, and executed the trade rules for their benefit. The Bergen contour was important from around 1343 to the mid-18th century. It was eventually closed in 1754, partly because trade with the Americas had reduced the importance of a number of Hansa towns, but mainly because powerful states like England and Holland, I mentioned, wanted to trade directly and not be subject to the Hansa rules of trade. Now, any tour around the Baltic will remind us of just how powerful the Hansa was for 300 plus years, 400 years. Some of the biggest statements were in their architecture. Gdansk. It was built as a Hansa city. There was nothing much there before the Hansa developed it, on the Vistula River to trade south to Warsaw and Krakow. It contained some very impressive buildings. Now, these were rebuilt after World War II because they were flattened during World War II, but this was, you know, obviously following the original plans. And as I said, Gdansk was a German city until World War II. I always like to throw in a totally useless fact. Here's a useless fact for you. The word spruce as in tree, comes from Saprus, i.e. from Prussia. Timber that was shipped from Gdansk to Scotland and all, all over the Baltic, because it was a very much a forested area, still is. The Riga Guildhouse, originally built 1282, and then rebuilt to the same design in the 1900s, because it was flattened during the war. Here's my favourite Hansa statement, just, we are powerful, we are strong, and you will do as you're told. <clears throat> Lubeck's city gates, built of brick, which was in the late 15th century, was really rather unusual. And it certainly makes an impressive statement. I keep talking about the buildings and the trade and the rules, but what about how was the stuff moved? It was moved in the famous cog. It, they, they were rich and powerful, but the ships were small and tame and not terribly impressive. But they were good at moving goods around. They were needed to be reliable, and they needed to move goods around the Baltic. They rather humble cog, single-masted, square-rigged, much wider than you'd expect given its length, generally flat-bottomed, which was ideal for coastal trade and for going up rivers like the Rhine, the Vistula, the Volga, and then en route to Novgorod. It was not very useful in the North Sea, and no use at all in the Atlantic, but meanwhile the British and the Dutch, because they were facing the North Sea and the Atlantic, developed much more sophisticated vessels which could deal with the Atlantic, but obviously over several centuries the cog was modified and made stronger and made bigger, and some of the later ones could take 300 tons of goods, which is quite impressive. They developed defensive and armed castles against pirates. And the battle against pirates was a constant one. And that's one of the reasons the Hansa prospered was that they, they unlike many of the smaller states, took on and defeated the pirates. Meanwhile, the Dutch and the British particularly were building bigger and better ocean-going ships. But the cog remained a key to the Baltic trade for hundreds of years. Seaworthy, versatile, and ideal as a small coastal trader. Now, the implication of what I said is that Hansa built lots of small ships, but they could build big. The Adler von Lübeck, the Eagle of Lübeck, built in 1567, partly to show off and partly to protect convoys from Swedish and from pirate attacks. And when built, it was the largest ship in the world, well, I suppose the European and Asian world that we knew about. It was, to repeat, the Hanseatic League's property, not the property of a national navy. 78 metres long, 40 metres beam, 138 cannon, and a crew with marines of over 1,000 people. It was, in a sense, the nuclear deterrent of its day, and was, I suppose, successful in that it was never used in anger. It later acted as a freighter carrying goods to the Iberian Peninsula. It was dismantled in 1588 after only 20 years of service, probably because it was not that manoeuvrable. Okay, i described the rise and rise and rise and expansion of the Hansa over two or 300 years, and this was the peak of the Hansa's power and power statements. Out of the peak comes decline. So the gradual decline of the Hansa in the 16th, 17th centuries it was not a continuous process, nor did all members decline together, nor did all the trade sectors, some went up, some went down, but there were a number of factors, and this is sort of the geopolitics of it, which really made it inevitable. And I think you could argue that the Hansa didn't actually decline, but the world expanded around it. So they carried on doing what they did, but it became a, a marginal rather than an absolutely critical trade network. Lots of profitable trading links remained, but as a proportion of the world trade, it lost monopolies in key markets, particularly in places like Britain. Some of the causes were local, some were apparently unconnected, and some were completely beyond its control. Now, political and economic stability was obviously essential for the prosperity of the Hansa cities, and somewhere in Europe in the entire period was having a war or a disagreement or some violent events were going on and the 30 years war was a major factor in the decline because it was concentrated in the german heartland the destruction on carnage of the 30 years war if you want to be really really depressed read any book on the 30 years war and if you can't clip with that go and see mother courage and the destruction and the carnage of this war led to the deaths of between a third and a half, in some places a half, I think the average was a third, of the population of what we would now call Germany and Poland. They died of wounds, of being killed on the battlefield, of disease, and perhaps a third of the population means something like 8 million plus people. Trade does not prosper in this kind of environment. And certainly if your customers are dying, it prospers even, even less. For some reason that nobody has satisfactorily explained, the herring shoals moved from the Baltic to the North Sea. And this disrupted the Hansa controlled fisheries and therefore the trade patterns in the Baltic, which is the whole thing was launched on fish and salt. And I had this vision pops into my head of the, the herring parliament meeting and deciding to move into British waters, much more friendly than British. <laughs> because they were so annoyed with all of their brothers being captured by fishing boats. And certainly by moving into the North Sea they made themselves much more difficult to catch. Now it wasn't just because of the niceness of the British, it was almost certainly caused by overfishing, unsurprisingly, and almost certainly by a change in the water temperature, an early example of climate change. In other places there were merchants who were tired of being excluded from the handsome monopolies and they took the direct route. I mentioned the Dutch and the British leaking out with each other, the Dutch linked up with Gdansk, Gdansk, Danzig, same place, and traded with them directly to the annoyance of the Hansa. Hansa had built it up, and now they were trading with another lot. But obviously the Hansa tried to stop this unhealthy trend towards independence, but they essentially failed. And from the mid-16th century, they had competition in the Baltic. The steel yard was closed in 1598, I mentioned that, coming on to the Treaty of Westphalia in just a minute. The Hansa did not just give in. They appointed Hans Suderman in 1556. He was a lawyer. He was given the task of reviving their fortunes. And he was effective in the short run. He began by clarifying and reinforcing the various agreements between the cities. He developed new trade routes. He moved the moribund Bruges contour to Antwerp. I mentioned that earlier. These were all thoroughly sensible things. Good, they were real reforms, strengthened the Hansa You could argue that his reforms helped keep them going for another hundred years, but he could not push back the realities of the tide that was running against them. He was a pretty formidable person, so he was charged with reviving them, to a degree he did, but there was other things that stopped them being able to continue as they were. I mentioned the changing priorities. What I have not mentioned is the Ottoman Empire, which, after Constantinople fell in 1453, significantly reduced the overland trade links to the Orient. And things got a lot worse when the Ottomans reached the outskirts of Vienna in 1683. So although they failed to take it, their attack weakened the Holy Roman Empire, which as I've said several times, provided a protective umbrella for the Hansa. And also, of course, the Mediterranean was a significant part of the Hansa's operations, but it's now not run by, but they had to deal with the Ottomans. So while they continued to trade, they did not call all the shots. Things changed between the 15th and the 17th century. That is the wider trade links, but the simple point is it focuses on Hansa cities, it focuses on the Hansa towns, and they manage the trade across Europe to Constantinople, around through the Med, and that's really before the Ottoman Empire had expanded. The Hansa is, is the centre of this trade link. Through Venice and Constantinople to the east, America was not yet a feature. But things change fast. From 1500 plus, growing trade with the East Indies meant the Baltic was less important as the centre of the supply chain, particularly for things like spices, which I've mentioned, which had come by Novgorod and Constantinople, now they did not. They could come round the Cape. So valuable trade goods could come round the Cape of Good Hope in Portuguese ships, later British and Dutch ones, and these same countries, which were always on the fringes of the Hansa but vital to it, turned their attention away from the Hansa outwards. And 1650, the Spanish were focusing on trade, and getting gold from the Philippines, from the Americas, the Portuguese focusing on Brazil and Africa and the growing market for slaves. The British got rich, generally operating as pirates, actually, by plundering Catholic, especially Spanish ships, which we were allowed to do, so that wasn't piracy. We had to fight the Dutch for naval superiority, but we gradually won that debate. And meanwhile, the Baltic trade was tougher for the Hansa because Denmark and Sweden became more powerful. Plenty of trade continued with Hansa cities continued to prosper, but they were no longer in control. As trade expanded elsewhere, they became something of a side show. the Hansa legacy. The post-Westphalian settlement. All you students of history can give me a quick summary of the post-Westphalian settlement. I have to admit that even though I did A-level history and quite a lot of history for my degree, I don't think anybody mentioned the post-Westphalian settlement because it's to do with these Europeans, not important people like the British and their expanding empire. But the, the Treaty of Westphalia may seem, as I said in my notes here, unconnected to the Hanseatic League. It is a bit of a detour, but it is actually vitally important. The treaty accepted that the state was the standard model for the future. No more theocracies, no more claims to the divine right of kings. Nation states were the new thing. And this revolutionary idea marks the foundation of modern Europe. So it is absolutely vital to understand the history of Europe. Now the links to the Hansa is fairly simple. The League of Cities was undermined by the growth of the states like England, and the fact that we and others were increasingly looking to America and Asia. The death and disruption of the Thirty Years' War, which this ended, obviously weakened the Hansa and affected the Holy Roman Empire, the Catholic Church, and the Danish monarchy, which, remember, controlled the entrance to the Baltic. So fundamental changes were happening in Europe. After the peace of Treaty of Westphalia and the opening of the trade routes to Asia and Africa, the Hansa continued but was a shadow of its former self. It no longer made the trade rules, nor could it force a weak state into submission. As with Britain in Europe today, it was no longer a rule maker but a rule taker. And thanks to the Westphalian settlement, several German princes began to flex their political muscles, they began to enjoy their new political authority, So, sort of saying I'm just a prince under the Holy Roman Empire, they could now become kings of Prussia or whatever. And the Hansa could no longer ignore them, were forced to negotiate with them and therefore lost a lot of their power. Now the last Hansa Assembly, 1669, 20 years after Westphalia, Lubeck, Hamburg and Bremen as the only important long term members. There were others, but these were the key ones. These German towns remained as free imperial cities and continued with the Baltic trade even after the Holy Roman Empire was abolished by Napoleon. This continued until they joined the German customs union in 1889 and even today they call themselves Hanseatic cities. If you want to stretch the Hanseatic League, when did I say the first Treaty with Novgorod, 1160 or something. 1160 to 1889 is a pretty long period for which to exist and to be powerful in the Baltic. So what was the Hansa's legacy? It came to represent a quote, a rule-bound international civilization based on shared values and priorities. It was not concerned about national or religious or ethnic issues, but about honest trade. It was monopolistic trade, to be sure, mainly for the benefit of its German members, to be sure. The values might seem a bit selfish, but they did work, an international cooperation they exemplified did increase prosperity for all. And the fact that it lasted as long as I've just said is really quite extraordinary. Membership of the League gave small cities a, a protective network w- within which they could prosper economically and not be afraid of being invaded because the bigger Hansa would come to their rescue if they were. It was a matter of great pride to be a Hansa city. Even today, places like Hamburg have number plates which have HH on them, Hanseatic Hamburg, and Lubeckers have HL. The Hanseatic League is obviously a model in many ways for the European community. The idea of common and agreed rules, the idea of prosperity through open trade, are both key principles of the EU. We've also, in Europe, had rising prosperity for 70 years, and 70 years of peace, in Europe. Whether with Britain's departure and other things going on in Europe, that will continue, we have to wait and see. If we were being a bit mean, we could mention the rather selfish, inward-looking, rule-bound approach of the Hansa, and the toleration of less-than-efficient monopolies, and for being another device for enriching German merchants. But let us be positive and quote Norman Davis, who says in his brilliant book entitled Europe, a History, which I'm sure you've all got on your shelves, the Hanseatic League stands in stark contrast to the Prussianism, nationalism, and imperialism which supplanted it. In European history, it shines as a beacon for all who seek a future based on sturdy local autonomy, international cooperation, and mutual prosperity. That's a pretty good epitaph. Now, I began this talk with a reference to Lufthansa, It means, more or less, Air Alliance or Air Guild in German. It's a good name for a German airline and has the advantage of making a link with an impressive piece of German history. Lufthansa was founded in 1955 and needed a name which avoided reminders of the recent Nazi or Prussian past. It was a very good choice. (laughs)
0: This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.